Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Later on, we'll be talking about a brilliant Irish woman of science, Mary Mulvihill, who sadly died in 2015, but who is remembered in an annual awards which we want to tell you all about. But first, we were delighted to speak to Liza Pullman, who in 2004 joined the internationally renowned comedy trio Fascinating Aida, henceforth known as F.A. They have performed at venues across the UK, including at Christmas in Leicester Square's Spiegel Tent, where they sang their now-famous Christmas song, and at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, where they performed their must-listen, post-Brexit hit, We're So Sorry Scotland. Their work is satirical and comedic and truly original. Separate to her career in music, she was also caught up in the London Underground bombings, and she talked to me about that dreadful experience. Liza's next challenge is taking on the music of Barbara Streisand. Here she is the very talented Liza Pullman. Liza, you're coming to Dublin to sing Barbara Streisand, but I really want to talk to you, uh, before we get into that, about your history with Fascinating Aida and and all of the stuff that has made many of us collapse with laughter down the years. <laughs> I mean, I urge anyone listening to this to to listen again to Cheap Flights, which is now eight years old, I think. It uh, is. I know. It's unbelievable. And hasn't aged a day, Liza. <laughs> I was just going to say, well, it's still relevant, isn't it? God knows. It I certainly mean, is. Every time I fly on a budget airline, I, I remind myself of the song. <laughs> and also, one of my very favourites is the post-Brexit, We're So Sorry, Scotland. Oh, I'm very proud of that song, Cathy, I must say. Well, that has not aged and never will. And You know, you- we, I don't know if you know this, but when we, when we did the show uh, last Christmas, Christmas before last in London, um, at the Spiegel Tent, we just did a very short season and um, everybody wanted to hear the Brexit song again. But, you know... I was going to say lots changes. Of course, nothing changes is the truth. But but the Scotland thing was very relevant when we did it at the festival because uh, it wasn't so long after the after the Scottish vote for independence. Um, uh, but we rewrote it uh, as "So Sorry Ireland," and oh. we we rewrote and we wrote it all about the border wall. So so it, I mean, I we did it for seven performances in London. And obviously we haven't performed together since then. But, but uh, you know, so I, people don't know that there is actually another version of it floating around there somewhere. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that because I was going to ask about that. And Liza, would you do me a favour and quote that line about self-destruct and what it rhymes with? It talks about pressing the, the, the buttons called self-destruct and that rhymes oh. with comprehensively. Fucked. Correct. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're in a pickle, come rescue us, nickel. As pickles, we couldn't be picklier. <laughs> a pickler. <laughs> I just please everybody listen to this song, and another one that that has that that everybody remembers here, uh, Liza, is "Look, Mummy, No Hands." Oh yes. Tell but us a bit c- about that and how that has taken over the world. Well, that's very much uh, Dilly's song. Although I know that she and Dilly, uh, she and Adele wrote it together, but of course. Um, 
fabulous Camille O'Sullivan uh, and Amanda Palmer um, uh, have both done wonderful versions of it themselves. Um, so it's, it's had a life outside of Fascinating Aida, which is not always true of our songs because they're, they're very often songs that only really make sense if the three of us are singing them. Um, uh, but it's a song that really reaches people's hearts, I think, and both of those fantastic ladies have done their own wonderful versions of it. So, Liza, you've mentioned the other two members of this glorious trio. I mean, how do you work as a group? I mean, you're extraordinarily enduring. You have extraordinary talents. You sing with very posh voices. I mean, you've done Glindbourne and you've done serious um, theatre. Uh, you are such an amalgam of amazing talents. Just tell us a bit about Fascinating Aida, first of all, and how you came together. Well, I think uh, F.A., as we call it, because it's just too dreary to say fascinating Aida all the time. Um, F.A. was formed, I think it's 35 years ago now, Cathy, and uh, Dilly was the first person to form it. Um, she, was, she was singing in a, in a restaurant with a couple of girlfriends and uh, went to a party, sang a song that she'd written. And I, I think the story is that the, the guy who was producing Start the Week on Radio 4 was at the party and he rang her the next morning and said, you know, would you come along and do a song for the radio program and she said yeah but can I bring a couple of friends with me and he said yes fine and she turned up and they said who are you and she sort of had to think of a name quickly and there's another actually quite boring story as to how the name came about but she said fascinating Aida so that's how fascinating Aida was born and then a year later um, Adele auditioned for the group so that's some 34 years ago and she's been in the group ever since so Dilly and Adele have really been the mainstays of the group and my Soprano position has always been a bit of a movable feast. <laughs> many, many, um, you know, famous members, including Izzy Van Renwick and um, Marilyn Cutts. But I, I've been the longest um, serving or the longest suffering soprano. Um, and I've been with the group for 15 years. You see, it's not something we associate, Liza, with, for example, um, uh, a Glyndebourne Festival Opera. Um, you know, it's, 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 you are very unique to yourselves, aren't you? This we particular are, trio when you get together. We are. And I think, to be honest, that's the reason why I was such a good fit for the girls. And that's not always the case is, is it's a very particular thing that we do. Um, and it's certainly not uh, everybody's cup of tea in terms of performing. You know, it's that thing of performing without a fourth wall of standing on a stage and communicating with an audience really as yourself, which is not something that everybody loves. Um, but, but for me, I, I really love it. And the older I've got, the more I realise that that is what I, that is my, my particular skill. Um, but having come from opera, and then before that, having come from a very, very theatrical family where I was kind of steeped in music of the 20s, 30s and 40s, and I sang close harmony with my sister as a child all the time. So when I came to FA, I had this uh, sort of multiple ability to uh, sing uh, very technically, which is hugely important for FA because we require our voices to do all manner of things, uh, and to sing close harmony music at a very high standard. And one of the reasons I think why we get away with murder for want of a better expression yes. um is because we pay such attention to the music uh, behind uh, behind those lyrics so you're not just being hit in the face with a, a barrage of crudity um you know you're you're it's being met with with glorious music and great harmonies and and huge care taken over that aspect of it and Liza, when you do, I mean, you and you and FA, do you do you part ways for a, for most of the year and then get together for a month or so, or how does that work? 
Well, it's been it's been unusual these last few years because uh, we were going great guns and we were expected to do um, another Edinburgh Festival, I think, three years ago and a big tour and a big London date. And our colleague Adele became uh, ill with cancer, which, as I'm touching all the wood I can find, she's now gloriously clear of. Uh, but it did throw a bit of a spanner in the works and everything was um, held. And uh, so... We sort of went our own merry ways uh, just because it was one of, you know, with, it's one of those things where you just don't know. You can't make plans. Uh, you don't know whether somebody's going to be well enough to do something. Also, we have to write and we have to meet and get back together. So actually, over the last few years, it's given all of us and, and indeed Adele herself, as she's gotten better, a chance to do our own solo thing, which is actually great for the muscles. Um, and then we've gotten back together through that on various occasions. And we are, in fact, due to get back together again this Christmas and a possible tour next spring. You've toured the Streisand show already, Liza. Why Why did you pick that? Why did you pick Streisand to tour with when you have so much else to call on? Well, I think... Um it was a, it's a double whammy, really. I, she's been recording for so long. She's been at the top of her game for so long that when you're picking a show, doing what I love to do, which is to make music, do my own arrangements, sing, and make people laugh and chat, you want to make sure that you've got an evening of great material. And the, the wonderful thing about doing a Streisand show is you have 54, 55 years worth of material to pick on. Um, and for me, that's just fantastic. I mean, there isn't a single song in the show that I don't absolutely love to sing. So that for me was incredibly stimulating. And also it requires me to sing songs from, you know, Fanny Bryce numbers from the 1910s to Neil Diamond songs from the 1970s, Billy Joel, uh, Charles Trenet song. You know, it's a really massive uh, breadth of, of vocal choices, which is hugely appealing for me. Yes, and an extraordinary woman. You also have your own six-piece band coming around with you, yeah? I do, I do. They're all fantastic, each one of them. Liza, tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, I, I, you're the daughter of a famous screenwriter, I, Claudius, War and Peace, Jack Pullman, um, yeah. and actress Barbara Young, who lost the Summer Wine, Coronation Street. I mean, these are obviously extraordinary mainstays of, of, of British arts and culture. So yeah. really, you couldn't miss it, could you? No, I couldn't. And I think my, my brief deviation into opera was my sort of attempt at trying to, to find my own way apart from my family because nobody was an opera singer in my family. And also I discovered that actors were really impressed if you said you were going to be an opera singer. So when I was a kid and we were surrounded <laughs> by actors and my sister was six years older than me and she was already an actress and everyone was thought it was great. And I'd go, oh, I'm going to be an opera singer. And they all went, oh, we love opera. So um, so I sort of, that was really how I ended up doing that. And then I sort of got to the age of 30 and went, you know, what I love it it's given me a great technique and a great grounding but um but it's not it's not where my heart and soul is yes and you you, you also give a whole new gloss to classical opera I think with with the with the breadth of those talents you have Liza you were you were um on the London underground train which was bombed in 2005 yeah uh, what did, and, and you also recorded some mobile phone footage of the experience which reached screens around the world can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, it was a very extraordinary situation. You know, none of us ever expect ourselves to, you know, to find ourselves in those situations. We've all watched those disaster movies, The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. As we watch them, we always think, oh, I wonder if I'd be like Shelley Winters. I wonder if I'd swim under a, 
you know, yeah. undressing pink ship. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, most of us don't get the chance to discover that. But I really did because I, I was, uh, I'd just come back from New York where I'd been with FA. And uh, I was at home in London. Um, my then husband, who's an Irish actor himself, was doing a, weirdly, doing a play at the Tricycle Theatre called The Arab-Israeli Cookbook, which was a play about suicide bombing. Um, and he was in preview and the tricycle is a wonderful venue, but doesn't pay very much money. And so I'd taken the job as, uh, as a temp, uh, working for a legal firm. And, uh, so I was on my way to do my first day's temping and, uh, I ran down to the station. I was a bit late. Gates were closed for a different reason, actually. I don't know why they, but they were closed. And so I was running a bit late when they opened them. I ran down the escalators, Wood Green, Piccadilly line, and uh, where I would normally sort of turn right and and go to the front of the train and always get a seat, and we're creatures of habit in London, uh, I just jumped on the carriage in front of me, which was actually the back of the third carriage, and of course the bomb was in the front carriage. Um, so it was one of those extraordinary sliding door moments where you do just think, I'm not a religious person, but you do just think somebody's looking out for you somewhere because, uh, you know, it could have been very different for me. Um, and we, we, it was a very busy train and at Finsbury Park, um, uh, a load of people got on and then at King's Cross, a load of people got off. And so I, I managed to get myself a seat and then the bomb went off between King's Cross and Russell Square Station. Um, and, uh, we were down there for about 20 minutes and yeah. Finally, oh. finally, that out. It was an extraordinary, yeah, extraordinary sort of life-changing experience. Did you make promises to convert to Catholicism or anything <laughs> while you were down there? To every religion I could think of, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Liza, you did something which I often wonder would I do in that situation, but of course I should as a journalist, which is to produce your recording device and yeah. get pictures or or eavesdrop on the horror of it. You managed to do that. Did you feel it was at all intrusive or did you feel this is my duty? I need to, I need to get this on film. Well, you know, Cathy, it was before any of us did that. Yes. Uh, it really was before we had this. It was before social media. It was before um, anybody used their phones in that way. And it really was um, a sort of uh, amalgamation of, of flukes, which was that I'd just got a new phone. It was a, a white Sony Ericsson. I was quite pleased with it. And it had um camera on it. That, you know, they were getting better and better each time you got a new one, weren't they? And this one had video on it. Uh, I'd never had a camera that had the ability to, to use uh, a phone that had could video on it. And I didn't take any footage while we were in the carriage because none of us really quite knew what was going on. Um, as we were led off through the underground and it was summer so I had flip-flops on and of course I hadn't realized quite how horrific I looked until I got to a mirror sometime later but I was covered in black dirt and soot and everything I was wearing was dark and gray and it was quite difficult to walk along the the underground um, rails uh, but it was such an extraordinary experience I, I thought I must take a picture and show it to David because he'll never believe what it's like down here. It's like being in a movie. So I tried to take a picture and it, it wasn't great. And because I had this new phone, I thought, well, maybe the video will be better. You know, it really wasn't, it wasn't a great Kate AD moment for me. I wasn't yeah. being, you know, I wasn't being incredibly at the forefront of, of, of uh, independent journalism, but I just thought maybe I can get a bit of footage and I'm very small. So I held it above my head as we walked in silence and I shot about, 40 seconds of footage, 43 seconds, I think it was. And then I had to stop because it was getting a bit tricky to walk. Um, and when I finally got home, which was a story in itself, uh, we had the Channel 4 News on all day and they were asking for photographs because people didn't do video footage at that point. And David, I'd shown David the, the video and he came in and said, look, I've just sent that video footage to Channel 4 because they were asking for 
anything from from the event within five minutes it was like that scene in broadcast news within five minutes it was on it was on the tv and it was on all over the world did you get money for that liza I didn't. I didn't. didn't. I didn't. And and interestingly, you know, we then entered a couple of years of of quite uh, financial hardship because, you know, when I look back on it, I realized that actually one of the effects it had on me, although it had many positive effects, um, one of the effects it had on me was it made me feel very vulnerable and it made me not inclined to stand up and audition for people. And when I did, I didn't do a great job. Um, so I had a couple of years of not really working very much and just doing a lot of temping. And, uh, and of course, I know that the people that sold the, the footage of the bus and, you know, tens of thousands of pounds, if not more for it. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, we've often talked about it. I, I wouldn't have sold it even if I'd known what was going to happen. I wouldn't have sold it because, I felt so incredibly blessed to have walked out of it unscathed, actually, although, you know, emotionally and covered in soot in my lungs and all that stuff. But when I knew that I think there were 27 people died on our line, the most of all of the lines, it would have seemed an impossible thing to have done to have made money on that. So I know I would have made the same decision again. Well, Liza, I think one of the interesting things about your story is people would assume that you're well set up financially and w- or would have been back then at least. Mm. Um, and that yours is a story that's not heard that often really about artists who are very well known out there, who are extraordinarily talented. Mm. And you, were, you, you, you survived then by temping. So I think it's, 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 it's an interesting insight into the, into, into the world of the arts and what well, we it think is, goes on there. It is. And of course, that is the reality of it. You know, I was very privileged. I grew up in a, in a very successful artistic back, family background. As you said, you know, my father was an incredibly celebrated writer and he was working all the time. And we lived in a very beautiful house in Hampstead. And I had a very privileged upbringing. Um, I never really saw the hardships of what it is to be an artist. But being married to an actor is not easy because uh, you're both working for very little money most of the time. Um, And at that point in London, uh, it was 2005, uh, the mortgage rates were rising through the roof. And we had our first home together and um, uh, we just didn't have enough money. Uh, And living in any city is an expensive place to live. And, And so you do what you have to do to survive in between those those great those great jobs and at that point with fascinating aida uh, we weren't on on the role that we then went back onto when we wrote cheap flights and we then started to tour again big time we were just doing sporadic bits here and there which were wonderful and always fantastically well received but not 365 days of the year so you know yeah you're right well, the good news is, Liza, is that you did get back on a roll with, with Fascinating Aida, which everybody should also listen to because <laughs> it's possible to turn things around. Um, I hope that your, 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 your marriage to the Irish man didn't end too badly and that coming back to Dublin is going to be an undilutedly wonderful experience. Oh, do you know, I mean, the, the, I, I, I mean Dublin's one of my favourite places in the world. My, my goddaughter lives there and my ex-husband, who, with whom I'm on incredibly good terms, um, his family I absolutely adore and, and I am hoping that they're all going to be there in spades at the National Concert Hall. So I, it's very exciting for me to be playing Dublin. So that's on Saturday the 20th of April. It is. Only a few weeks away and tickets are on sale now. Thank you so much, Liza Pullman, for taking our call this morning. My producer here, Roisin Engel, is wondering, would you give us a a small bar of a song? A small Barbara song. A small bar, bar of a song or a small okay. Barbara song, whichever you a like. Small bar, it's almost the same, isn't it? Yes. Well, I, I have it in my mind. So why don't I do uh, very raw, very unaccompanied. Memories. 
light the corners of my mind. Misty watercolor memories of the way we were. Will that do? Liza Pullman, that will do perfectly. We look forward to hearing a lot more of that. Thank you so much. We'll see you. Thank we'll see you, you in Dublin. Take care. Goodbye bye bye. now. Bye bye. That was Liza Pullman there. A fascinating Aida. Really are glorious. Gloriously talented. Gloriously funny. Gloriously different. And it was great to talk to her. Now, the closing date for the annual Mary Mulvihill Award is coming up soon. So we wanted to celebrate the woman for whom the award is named. Mary Mulvihill was a pioneer of science journalism and communication in this country and a passionate advocate for women in science before that kind of thing became as trendy as it is now. Her life's work was to tell Ireland the stories about itself that it had forgotten, about its rich scientific and industrial heritage. She founded WITS, Women in Technology and Science, and she created a supportive network for colleagues involved in science. We asked Irish Times technology columnist Carlin Lillington and Mary Mulvihill's sister Anne to come in and talk to us about Mary, about the award and about women in science. Here they are now talking to Roisin Ingle. Anne and Carlin, you're very welcome. I'll start with you, Anne. What, just tell us about your sister Mary Mulvihill and what she was like. Well, I suppose first and foremost, she was my big sister. Um, Big sister to myself and my other sister, Noreen. And... um, like most of the roles she took on in life, she was really good at that. <laughs> um, could have been a bit of a hard act to follow at times. She was um, a very clever student in school, really enthusiastic and quick to learn. So coming up behind her could be challenging at times. And then she went off to Trinity to study genetics and she got awarded a Trinity scholarship Um and I happened to follow her into Trinity, so I was very relieved that the course that I took actually wasn't linked in in the Scala exams Thank when I goodness. started. So, so you were, didn't you have to <laughs> face into that one. Yeah. Um, so she did a degree in Trinity in genetics, and then she followed that with a master's in statistics. And then a few years later, I think she was actually in the first year um, of doing a graduate diploma in journalism in what's now DCU. Um, and Mary was just one of these people who just had a, an incredible appetite for knowledge and for trying to understand the world all around her and how science could help to explain the world to us. Um, and I think she was one of those people, like she was mad to get the knowledge and the information, but she also had this real desire to share all of that with with everybody else so she didn't just want to know it for herself she wanted to share it and she she really wanted to do that and she did it really well really accessible so she made things that were difficult to understand or that you knew nothing about she could make them really accessible and explain stuff that you'd never even thought about and um, she just really wanted to share it and she was very good I think at telling stories about science. Mm. She was mad about the bike. She cycled she everywhere. She was mad about the bike. I think she reckoned <laughs> Carlin, the you're bike nodding there. The yeah, because I cycled too and we lived near each other for a long time yeah. and I was, I'd always run into her and then we'd have a long conversation. She'd, she'd look at my bike with a dismissive gaze and say, oh, <laughs> I looked at those and they're way too heavy. You should really have, you know, that one weighs such and such. You should really get this type of bike that would be much better. But Yeah, she yeah, cycled she was, everywhere. She did. Yeah, and in all weathers. 
And so she was really healthy and she was for vegetarian mostly. Well, I don't know if she was vegetarian, but yeah, she ate she healthy. Didn't she eat looked meat, so, she yeah. yeah, yeah, she ate healthy. She had heard about organic before any of the rest of us knew what it meant. Yeah. And yeah, she And so then it was 2015 when she got ill. She got diagnosed with cancer, cancer, a very rare form of cancer, cancer of the vagina in March 2015 and she died in June. So it was a shocking experience for her and for all of us and it was yeah yeah just 11 weeks between she she got a pain in her side that was the first side met a friend for lunch and she complained of a pain in her side and it just spiraled out of that yeah you remember that time uh, Carla I actually only heard at the very last minute and she was already it was only about a day or two before she actually passed away that I knew because I'd moved quite a distance away out near Bray. and But but a, a woman in science that I knew had called me about something completely different and had just mentioned, oh, it's so awful about Mary. And I was saying, Mary, which Mary and, 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 and what's wrong? And I was so shocked. And I said, oh, you know, I must go in to see her. And she said, oh, she's very, by this point, she was very, very ill. And yeah, I she, away, she, she knew. Day pretty early on I think herself that just it didn't look good uh, and but uh, it was devastating to so was. many people because yeah. it was so it was so sudden and so many of us didn't know and then found out in this very sudden way as well and it was just so shocking because she was so I mean I know people say you, this is true about anybody who becomes suddenly ill because you you think of them as being so healthy and full of life but Mary was particularly because she just was so full of life and she was always everywhere and she had become she was such a fixture on the science and technology scene and and with that love of science talking to kids her her yeah. tours, yeah. everything, it just it just seemed impossible that she wasn't there. And I still constantly will think I see her if I'm back around. I, I, I saw somebody uh, with it's a bike so and a high-vis jacket yesterday. And, and you're almost like, ready to say yeah. Mary, and then you realise it can't be Mary. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, You wrote a lovely piece in the Irish Times, actually, oh, after she died. And you talked about, I can't believe I'm not going to meet this enthusiastic person <laughs> again. Yeah, That's so true. And I yeah. really... So with the legacy that she left, I mean, and that's so shocking and it's only so recent, um, you know, in terms of your family and, and the people close to her. Um, but was there a sense very early on that she had so much that I suppose she had so much left to give, but she had given so much in her 55 years. I think she was 55 when she died, that it was it couldn't just be gone, that there had to be something to market. Tell me how that came about, how the awards came about. Yeah, I suppose, I think a couple of people suggested it, Carla, and I think you might have mentioned it at the time, after she, just after she died, and some other people. And, and, and I suppose there was the feeling of that we had all been robbed of her and she had been robbed, and, and the feeling of kind of wanting to do something to mark it and to, to remember her, remember the contribution she had made to kind of honour that legacy. And so a group of friends and family got together um, and established this award and the first award, the, the Mary Mulvihill Award, and the first award was in 2017. Um, so it's kind of just to honour honor her legacy. And um, and I suppose one of the criteria is kind of that the, the, the winning entry would maybe reflect the kind of curiosity and um, creativity and storytelling that was kind of inherent in Mary's writing and work. 
And in fact, uh, someone from the Irish Times won the inaugural award, Irene Fogarty. So she was she couldn't be here today, but um, she did her essay or her her presentation on um, women in indigenous cultures and science. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? The winning entry. Yeah, I suppose her her piece, and and I, it's important maybe to state that the the award isn't just for for women. Oh yes, that's but, very important. Um, so it is open to... <laughs> it just happened that the best person it was a woman. It just happens and I think Mary might have been very secretly pleased that the, <laughs> the first two winners have been, have been women. And Irene Fogarty's piece um, focused in on indigenous women and the, the knowledge, the indigenous knowledge that they have about um, science. And um, she wrote a piece on, on indigenous women in... Uh, a few different areas in the world, but I, I suppose kind of talking about the important contribution that women have and the knowledge that they have um, and that that's often neglected or forgotten. So her piece focused in on that. And the um, theme for this year's award is Science for the Love of It, which is very nice. And it encourages entries that explore the personal feelings scientists may have for their disciplines, be it abstract ideas they consider or the actual objects of their research, whether they're bogs, bugs or galaxies. So it's very much that personal thing and the passion that's there, not just doing something abstract. It's something that's really yeah, uh, yeah. means something to the scientist. Yeah. Can I just say what I wanted to do was maybe just mention what some of her legacy is, too, because we, we talked a bit about her personally and, and what she went into it and became a communicator. But but she did this. One of the reasons why the award isn't just an essay is because Mary did sort of everything. And I mean, she was she wrote herself. She edited Technology Ireland, which is around the time I first came across her. She nurtured so many of us as young writers, uh, particularly women in science and tech at a time when there were very few of us, but also she was just a generous supporter of so many of us. She also, um, she was a founding member of the Women in um, Technology and Science Group WITS in, back in 1990. Um, she was involved with the Irish Science and Tech Journalist Association and the NUJ. She um, did a lot of work for RTE. She did podcasting before hardly any, before, well, before yeah, anyone knew what it was. Podcasting was. She turned many, she did did walking tours. She turned many of those tours into tours you could buy and walk around and listen to in the in the. Wow! Um, so she was a real in innovator as Garden well. In Dublin, she, then she wrote these yeah. extraordinary books on in ingenious Ireland and ingenious Dublin, all about these um, pioneering scientists and interesting places that you might go to that had these science things. Which is like one of those merry things you'd be walking along with her, and she'd point at a building and say something about the building or or a fossil in in the <laughs> you know in the facing on, on the building and tell you these yeah, things she, that you know was, nothing she, about. I think she used to say that the, the, the rocks and the stones held huge amounts of history and stories. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, and I have this quote from her. She says, <clears throat> you, you walk all over this rock and you never notice it and you never learn from it. Yet it has so much to say. It has history written in it. It is time captured in a kind of capsule, which is such a great And image. that is, and she was the one who conveyed those stories. And she also particularly had this love of um, 
of recovering women scientists and technologists in Ireland, people who had almost been obliterated from history and were restored through her books. Um, That first one in 1997 was Stars, Shells and Bluebells. And a lot of kids, a lot of high school, uh, second level students would have had that book, I believe. I think so, yeah. They were were two books with wits that she... And then Lab Coats and Lace, which she did. And I wrote a piece on... What a great title, Lab Coats and Lace. (laughs) And I wrote a piece on Kathleen McNulty, the the wonderful um, computer scientist from Donegal who went over to the U.S. and then, I mean, it's quite groundbreaking in um, the early era of uh, computer programming. Um, And and so many of these these names are known to us, especially in Ireland, because Mary wrote these things and did these broadcasting programs. But it's and funny because she, it's just podcasts. when you're talking about her there, in so many ways she was ahead of her time because like say with the podcasting is one aspect, but also Way just the, the kind of recovering these women because mm-hmm. we're all yeah. over that now. But I mean, when she was doing it, there wouldn't have been that many people sort of no, they trying were forgotten to say, look, and neglected. Yeah. So yeah. she was all at the very start of that uncovering of these the legacy of these people that we'd kind of written out of and history. Then, and then looking at technology, I mean, I remember so clearly as a technology journalist running into her a couple of times where at a time when people were just beginning to get onto the internet, she had figured out, well, she could do, you know, she could create a website and she could get these archives of material and you could do these downloads. And she created a, a whole business for her um, downloadable podcasts and, and walking tours around um, utilizing technology in these incredibly creative ways, which again, were way ahead of her yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, and really yeah. now you're only seeing the the, the, the widespread use of this in maybe the past five years or so, especially yeah. podcasts have, 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 you know, have become so prominent. That's I why we're know, sitting here today. Exactly. And Carlin, like when you think about it, so, you know, she's she's not with us anymore, but you were saying to me earlier, Anne, about how much she had left to give and how much she would still be contributing and over a long period. That's just, it's very sad, isn't it? It is, to yeah. Have lost that. It is, yeah. And I think your piece there about her encouragement and her nurturing of you know, people starting into the area. That's that's really one piece that we want to try and um, get the award to to keep up. And you can enter this in loads of different forms. That's because it reflects her, really. The fact that yeah, it could be a podcast, she did. it could, could be, be an podcast. essay. It might be a photo essay. It, it might be a be video. A, it could be a video. It could be a radio kind of thing. It could be yeah. It could be any of a, a range of formats as, as long as you're, um, and it's for third level students. You can be an undergraduate or a graduate. Or a post, or a and and yeah, or, or enrolled in an Irish third level institution. Yes, the, so the, there are the some criteria, criteria okay. undergrad or postgrad students, and the closing date is the 31st but of it's, March. But it's the idea of the communication and the creativity yeah. and that curiosity that, that's most important. I know when we sit and look at entries, we're looking, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the ability to communicate effectively. But also not just writing an essay about a, a decent, you know, a nice yes, topic. Yes, not just it's, an academic essay. It's that sharing. We, we want to be excited yeah. about it, and and yeah. in the um, and we were excited. We were, as, as a matter of fact, last year we enjoy, enjoyed a couple of pieces so strongly that we we, <laughs> we decided awarded. to opt for yeah. a first and a second ah, yeah. um, place award, and we were really excited about. In this case, again, it was all young women who won, and then we had um, uh, Jocelyn. 
uh, Jocelyn Bell, Bell Burnell, Burnell came to present to, the to award, present the yeah. award yeah. and Wonderful. she was and she was really impressed with the entries I yeah. know and well we can't let you go Carlin and Anne just without sort of talking more widely about women in science because it is a very exciting time and even just recent Nobel uh, awards that were, were given so Carlin what do you think do you think there is more there seems to be a more visibility anyway and things seem to be shifting a bit, but obviously still challenging for women yeah, in science. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I cover, I look at things more from the technology end of things. And, and obviously it's been a very interesting year or two now, thanks to the Me Too movement in great part because it's raised, there were issues already percolating up on management issues and for researchers, women involved in technology companies. And because that wider movement arose it really has given a spine to many of those issues. And um, and we saw a walkout at Google, for example, worldwide over issues based around gender and, um, and the concern about um, whether things were being effectively investigated and then dealt with when complaints were brought forward. And, you know, the technology culture is very male. So I think this is really important. Tech bros and it's a, the a tech thing. bros <laughs> and the programmer culture. It's It's... Exciting to see that visibility and energy there. It would be nice to not have to direct energy towards fighting a, 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 an entrenched culture and instead let these women with their ideas and abilities and entrepreneurship blossom. Right. And anything to add on that? Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, how can people get involved with the competition and find out more about it? So the closing date is the 31st of March and you can get all of the information on how to apply um, on marymulvahillaward at gmail.com. Okay, and is there a, there's a website as there's well, There's a website. There? Yeah, yes. again, which is marymulvahillaward.ie, but if, if, you know, you can use the search engine of your choice to look at <laughs> Mary Mulvahill and Award and, and information will come up. And I really, really encourage people to look at this because I think, you know, if, you're, if, if you are in the area of science and technology, I cannot stress enough how important it is to, to hone your communication skills because you will use them regardless of whether you think you're going to stand up um, and, and do a broadcast. But, you, you know, you may need to do a presentation before the board. You may be an entrepreneur wanting to pitch your own company. You may want to, um, you, you want to be able to convey your own excitement about your topic to other people, and that's how you advance in your career. So, so think about it. Come up with an idea. It's a nice broad topic, and and, um, check out the website, and we look forward to. Did we mention and the prize? You mentioned the actual oh, the award. Prize. So what is, yes. what's in it for there's people a, who go for it? The, Some money. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it's always a, good. Two thousand euro. It's a it's a nice prize. Um, and we've managed to get some nice coverage in the media on it as well. So and it's, it's a nice thing to go on nice your CV all around. Yeah. So it's a. Yeah. Um, it's so yeah. Go it's for it. And and any final words about Mary and kind of her legacy that you'd like to say about what she did leave behind? And obviously it's very devastating for everybody who loved her. Yeah, it is. I mean, I suppose this is, it's just great to be able to, to do this and, and to have established the award. It's no replacement for her, but it, it marks her. Okay, well, thank it's you both very much for coming in today and we encourage everyone to go and check it out. Even if you're not going to enter it, just to find out more about Mary, find out more about science and the kind of very unique way she had of making it accessible, it sounds like, to, to everybody. 
um, which is what the and the winning all past about. winning essays, past winning projects are there to look at as well for right. ideas and and just yeah, they're, they're an enjoyable website. both they're all very enjoyable, interesting read as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Carolyn Lillington and Anne Mulville and to Liza Pullman of Fascinating Aida. Remember, you can contact us on Twitter or Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.